Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week. It's often been accused of being a talking shop, but now the G20 is looking increasingly like yesterday's talking shop. With the BRICS having stolen their thunder two weeks back, is this week's G20 meeting about as relevant as an Eagles reunion tour? The Chinese are being modest again. It took a teardown of the new Huawei phone to reveal the most alarming tech news of the year. The company has busted the chip sanctions and successfully made their own 5G model. Say hello to the Kirin 9000. Don't you know there's a war on? A shock report says that the US Treasury is running a deficit as big as any in wartime. 8% of GDP, $2 trillion. But don't worry, unemployment is the lowest since the 1960s. When none of the metrics make sense anymore, is America entering its Brezhnev era? But first, ain't nothing but a G20 thing. Yeah, so the G20 is meeting soon. I think it's next week by the time we uh, release the podcast. Um, And uh, they're meeting in New Delhi in India. Um, The big deal really is that, well, first of all, Vladimir Putin won't be there. Obviously, the Russians won't be there. I think I'm not sure if they're sending a delegation. Maybe they are. Xi Jinping will not be attending. And they'll be sending the country's premier, Li Kuang, instead. That is a really big deal. I mean, there's a few theories about why why it's happened, but it's certainly, at the very least, a bit of a snub. Uh, it's the first time a Chinese leader has not attended the G20 Leaders Summit since it was first held in 2008. Xi has said that he's not going, or the Chinese government said that Xi's not going, and um, there have been kind of competing narratives about this. Some in the, in the West have tried to make it out that this was a... Um, issues surrounding India. There's some uh, border disputes, the usual in Himalayas, I think. More likely is that the BRICS uh, summit, the big BRICS summit, where they added six new countries, has just taken place a few weeks ago in August. And Xi saying, I'm not going to the G20, is basically him saying, the G20 is not important enough to attend anymore. The G20, again, we can go into the history a little bit more, but it's it's an expansion of the G7, or previously the G8, before Russia got kicked out in 2014, an expansion of that to deal with the, with the non-Western countries. So Xi is effectively turning around and saying, we have our own uh, party where we deal with, with non-Western countries, and we don't need to engage with them there anymore. Now, my understanding is India is still pushing ahead quite strongly with the G20, but I wouldn't particularly take that as an indication that they're incredibly um, um, invested in it and the Chinese aren't. I mean, it could just as easily be that it's in New Delhi this year. It's probably been planned for a while now. So so that's what's going on. I think it's, I think it's a really enormous development. Um, I think the, the interpretation that, you know, 
the BRICS is the future. That's what we've just put on. And the G20 is the past. I think that's pretty clearly what the Chinese are saying. Oh, and the other thing that was probably worth mentioning was that there was some wrangling. Um, so some of the things floated by the by the various countries, by China and so on, was that there was wrangling over uh, some sort of leader's statement on the Ukraine war, which everyone was bickering over effectively, because because a lot of the G20 countries aren't Western countries. A lot of them haven't joined in on the Western sanctions against Russia, and they haven't condemned uh, the Russian invasion. So that's creating um, that's creating tensions too. But I, I think when we talk about the history of the G20, I think that's when um, getting into the details on that will, will be important. I think you're right about the G20 seeming less important these days. It obviously set up and, and during a period when it was felt that it was time to recognize the increased economic size and clout of um, of the uh, developing world's nations. And these days it seems that the world, instead of coming more together uh, through organized or as represented by an organization like the G20, instead of that, what's happening is the world's bifurcating. It's dividing into two. Um, this is most clearly seen through, of course, the expansion of BRICS and the increase in prominence of the BRICS organization. But it seems clear anyway that as far as the G20 is concerned, over the last 10 years or so, uh, the Russian Federation has become increasingly isolated from the Western world, which is a significant portion of the G20 and certainly a, a large part of its economic power. And increasingly now, over the last two or three years, um, the United States has imposed sanctions and drawn in its uh, a decent proportion of its alliance network into applying sanctions as well against uh, China in the technology sector, most prominently, of course, microchips, which we've covered extensively on the Multipolarity podcast and will indeed again this evening. So it seems clear to me that China's also decided that, look, this you know interaction with the West, it, it's trending in the wrong direction. And they appear to be prioritizing organizations like the BRICS and like the, the Shanghai uh, Security uh, Cooperation Organization, the SCO. One just gets the feeling that the, uh, that the G20 has been a short-lived organization, but it's very much yesterday's organization. And tomorrow's organizations will be the G7 and the BRICS and the SCO. I think it's worth going into a little bit of the history um, about these these organizations and what they are there to do. The short answer on them is that they're sort of crisis response organizations. So we've talked many times on the podcast before about basically the, the modern economic, diplomatic and financial system comes into being in 1945, well, designed at the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference. Um, and at that conference, they created the IMF and the World Bank. Um, the G7 was not created at that point. The G7 was created in, I believe, 1973, or could have been 1974, and it was created in response to the first oil shock, which was, I believe, again, in response to the Yom Kippur War between Israel and the Arab states. They jacked up the price of oil and boycotted sales of oil to the West. Um, so the G7 was, was set up basically for uh, the developed market um, and at the time, really the only wealthy place in the world, 
to for their finance ministers to coordinate with one another on at first basically crisis response how do we deal with this big opec oil shock also taking into account basically the interaction between the economics and the geopolitics i think that's really at the center of an organization like the g7 the g20 um emerges i think actually it emerges in 1999 but it's a pretty small affair at that point and somewhat similarly to the g7 it emerges out of a crisis well actually out of, out of a series of crises in the late 90s in the mid to late 90s there was a series of emerging market debt meltdowns effectively it started with the mexican peso crisis i want to say that was 1996 East Asian uh, Tigers crisis of 1997 which then spread to Russia the Russian government debt crisis in 1998 and eventually that comes right around and it hits um the United States financial se- uh, system through a hedge fund called long term capital management so at that point i believe it's larry summers and the finance minister of canada say we g7 can't deal with this anymore we're not uh, the the world economy has now developed to such an extent that we need a larger forum in which we're going to discuss these issues to ensure i mean the main uh, priority at that point was to ensure financial stability the the g20 really comes into its own around after i'd say the financial crisis obviously it's set up in response to financial crises and um, we don't have any international uh, financial crises major ones after that we do have the bursting of the dot com bubble in the united states but really the next big financial crisis is well it's well known to be the global financial crisis so the g20 really comes into its own in 2008 2009 and this is kind of its this is its shining moment really in the sun because this is what it was set up to do and you can read varying accounts of of how it dealt with the you know the global nature of the crisis and the response and everything like that i i think it's fair to say it played a role and um and it was a good discussion forum and it got people on the same page now what happened after that and what plays into what might end up being the dissolution of the g20 is that it it couldn't keep itself focused on that economic and financial question alone what you started to see creep in was the use of the forum for um how should i put it to i mean the west with the westerners and the people supportive of doing this would say to maintain global norms uh if you're more critical you'd say it's being used as a geopolitical tool um it starts i think the first major intervention um Uh, in this direction is at least the first controversial one is during the Syri- Syrian civil war where the uh they I think they get a leader's statement or they try and push for a leader's statement about uh the chemical weapons attack in Syria and they condemn it and they say that they want to um they want to wind down the uh they they want to they they, they want to disarm uh ma- weapons of mass destruction and so on in Syria so that introduces immediately attention into the forum if the forum is there as this kind of economics financial stability uh discussion group and you inject that into us that's only going to work in so far as you're only impacting small countries so for example if you say we're going to use the G20 this year to condemn the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad provided you can get everybody on board with that provided you can get the russians on that since they were allied with Assad and so on 
it's conceivable to do that. You're not really stepping on very big toes. And Siri is not, I don't think Siri is even a member, so it doesn't really matter. But when those geopolitical issues start becoming engulfing, all-encompassing, as they have in the past 18 months, it's not clear that the G20 really can work. Um, and there's a little bit of arrogance that here because it, it's it's set up, as I said, this economics and financial discussion forum. Nobody went in with the intention of using this as kind of a geopolitical tool, but it just kind of developed in that direction. And people started uh, people started to kind of take advantage of it as a forum for that, but they never really thought it through. They never said this is designed to do this. They just kind of you know used it for that. And of course, I think if this ends up being the beginning of the end of the G20 or or it just kind of becoming a much less important forum that people pay less and less attention to, it's precisely because of that. Because if you if you want to set up something for economic cooperation or financial stability or something like that, you really have to kind of narrowly focus on that. And if you let this kind of mission creep in, it's not really that surprising in retrospect what's happening. This is an incredibly important point because that development of the G20 mirrors exactly the development of the entire uh, global order that the US has constructed, what's often these days called the rules-based international order. And what I mean by that is this. Sanctions, for example, take advantage of a um, financial and trade and banking and currency architecture, which is under the control of the US, but in theory benefits everyone. And it gives the US very good benefits and it allows it to extend a great deal of power through doing that. And everyone gets a, you know, a great deal of benefits, which I won't go into now, but they involve things like a place to park uh, capital and excess savings a single currency that can be universally used for trade and, um, uh, you know, a whole range of, uh, of benefits over and beyond those. And they're all under the control of the U.S., whether that be, you know, the SWIFT, the SWIFT system or, 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 you know, the major financial capital markets or the currency itself or the World Bank and the IMF. The whole thing's under, the, you know, within arm's reach of the US, so to speak. However, once you start utilizing that for your own geopolitical aims or your own strategic uh, imperatives, whether you feel that's justified or not, and whether the, in fact it is justified or not, you can only do it a certain amount before people try to start moving away from that or, or escape the clutches of that system. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. You know, the U.S. Has, has used sanctions to an increasing degree. And I think really the straw that broke the camel's back was Russia, which was really too big or maybe not, maybe too big is the wrong word. I suspect it's the right word. But more importantly, it's it, it's too central to the global economy because of what it produces, because of its uh, nature as a resources, natural resources superpower to actually exclude and it also shows that these things weren't as safe as countries supposed, and they were ultimately reliant on, um, on uh, you know, fitting broadly within uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy uh, preferences. And 
exactly the same seems to have happened with the G20. And it, it, it's the same with a whole range of institutions. We we spoke last week, for instance, about um, the brick or a fortnight ago now because we had the premium episode, which people should uh, look up on Patreon and uh, download because it was excellent and we got some great responses. But that's another story. Um, we, we spoke about the BRICS and how people are looking for an alternative to the IMF because it's unpopular for a variety of reasons. But again, the IMF is something that has started to be used um, to impose uh, U.S. moral preferences even, not just financial and trade and geostrategic preferences, but moral preferences even. Um, and I think the G20 really mirrors that. It, you know, it was something that the U.S. took the most prominent role in. They were the drivers between organize, uh, behind organizing it. Uh, certainly it wouldn't have existed and it wouldn't have had any clout and it wouldn't have been able to achieve anything without the U.S. And, of course, because of that, because of the U.S. leadership role within this quite important forum for fighting crises, and, and certainly I remember after the global financial crisis when it seemed the world was very close to having a, a full-blown financial cardiac arrest, the G20 was actually crucial for calming markets and showing that all of the world's governments and financial ministers were on board and singing from the hymn sheet and moving in the same direction. And of course, you, that gave U.S. leadership in that role. But of course, because of that leadership, it allowed them to say, well, this is another lever that we can pull to achieve our financial ends. Now, we get to how this G20 meeting is also a kind of a microcosm of the direction of travel, but on a far more precise uh, a precise level, a, a, a micro scale rather than a macro scale. And that's the bickering about the uh, the wording of the final communique, okay? The U.S. wants to use it, the, 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 the levers of power it has, to achieve geostrategic aims with regard to Russia and Ukraine. But, of course, not everybody's interested in that. And that creates a situation where really nothing can be done with these organizations and they're going to disappear altogether, and the U.S. is going to lose control of it. It was exactly the same that, that we saw in Saudi Arabia with regard to this um, Ukrainian peace summit, where nothing was achieved in the end because nobody could agree on the final communique. And it seems very much that countries have just decided, like, look, we can't get things done in this way anymore. So, you know, we're going to go off and do our bricks and... And in the West, the G7 seems to be, have been a lot more prominent over the last year or so in coordinating and guiding, a, you know, a lot of big things like the the um, the oil price cap on uh, Russian exports of crude oil. A lot of that was discussed through through the forum of the G7. You know, you you know, you read these news articles. It was all kind of, you know, G7 allies, G7 friends, and and all of the rest of it. So. You, very much seeing whereas these things were incredibly useful and in fact gave America a leadership position. It feels like the US has kind of cashed in on that leadership position and now it, 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 it's struggling to maintain that because it, like sanctions and like a whole bunch of other things, it, it's something that you can only use once and then you start losing control because people want to go their own way. It, it, it stops becoming beneficial for everybody. I mean, just really quickly, the tying together two of your points, which are both very pertinent, is first of all, I don't understand why they haven't figured this out yet. Like, you're not, 
you know, by by kind of using this as a geopolitical, you know, arm twist or whatever you want to call it, like it's not working. Like, uh, like this has only been a really serious organization for less than, you know, for, for what, 15 years, really? And you want to kind of just like, you know, spend all of the capital down to achieve literally nothing. Nothing will be achieved through this. And all you'll do is lo lose the leverage you have by having a central role and by having created that organization. It's such a it's such a lose-lose proposition. There's no upside to this. And I don't understand why Western leaders haven't started looking at this and saying, what we're doing is fruitless and we're and we're piddling away what left we have in terms of leadership capital through these institutions. The second thing I'd say quickly is this this is going to come back to bite us. Because we discuss on the show all the time that we probably will have a financial crisis in the next few years. The housing markets look shaky. The financial system's a bit, a bit rockety, all that kind of thing. There's at least, I think everyone knows that there is a significant risk of another financial crisis. That financial crisis could easily be global in nature, just like it was before. And what are we going to do when we find that the G20 is not working? Because that's what it was set up to do. I mean, maybe the optimistic case is that if we have a financial crisis, that there'll be so much pressure that we'll have to kind of get the old band back together, go along and just sort things out. And maybe it'll be good for international diplomacy. But you're, you're running a huge risk spending down the political capital of this, uh, of this organization so late in the cycle with shaky housing markets and so on. Hurry, Kieran. Yeah, the news um, in the past week about microchips in China has been um, very, very interesting. And I think it's now it's now become so obvious that strategy that uh, was only put together a few months ago. I don't think it's even been a year, really. Maybe it's been just a year when the U.S. put together this entire kind of China containment strategy, economic containment strategy, that's not actually a, an e economic containment strategy. It's just a kind of slowing strategy. You know, never communicated properly. And, you know, if things aren't communicated properly, maybe it's because it's not a very clear idea. I think that has now hit the ultimate wall. It's it's becoming utterly impossible to ignore. A new, a new smartphone was, uh, was released by Huawei, and um, it's pretty much a top-tier 5G smartphone um from the reviews that i looked up before the show basically compares to an iphone 14 pro which my understanding is is the ultimate uh, apple model the whole idea behind a lot of these chip bands and so on has been to hobble uh, china's ability to make at the time that this phone was just released onto the market and then Bloomberg, I think the story is that Bloomberg got their hands on one of them. They just bought one from AliExpress or eBay or something, and they stripped it down. And they said, yeah, it looks like they've got a seven nanometer chip. So we can go into a moment uh, ha um, what the response has been to this in the West. But, um, but I think we can certainly say that our skepticism around these chip bans and sanctions um, is becoming uh, more vindicated every day. Yes, I agree with that, Philip. I think... One of the things that the last year is showing us is that some of our prognostications without giving ourselves too much of a pat on the back are proving increasingly accurate. I, I just want to rewind a little bit, a few years if it's possible, though, because, of course, the chip bans against China of the last year have been very much in in the news. And I think that it's easy for people to get that forget that Huawei 
was actually the canary in the coal mine for this three years ago or four years ago, probably now. So what happened was Huawei had a, a you know burst through the global smartphone market. Um, a lot of their phones had a fantastic offering in terms of the raw hardware, you know, the camera, um, the quality of the microchip, the, the, the amount of RAM, the, the quality of the screen, all of that sort of thing. And in many ways, their phones outstripped both Samsung and Apple, which dominated the smartphone market at the time. And because of that, they were taking an increasing share of the global smartphone market. I think that was bad enough, and there was a lot of discontent about that. I should say it wasn't just perhaps because they were taking the share. Some people might argue it was, but I think there was also a lot of security concerns. Whether they were founded or not is another matter. I won't get into that. But really, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was when it became clear that Huawei had developed a full 5G tech stack quite a few years ahead of their Western rivals, uh, you know, ahead of the US and uh, Scandinavian rivals, which are the, were the two rivals to develop um, 5G systems in terms of the, the mobile phone communications towers and all of the rest of it. And Huawei were way ahead and they started signing contracts and there was a certain panic. Now, the official explanation was that it would give Chinese security because of the nature of the way that uh, ch large Chinese companies are organized with members of the Communist Party of China on their boards of directors, it would give the Chinese security services access to backbone telecommunications within, say, Britain, where we had a huge debate about whether to let Huawei build out our 5G or not, uh, or within the US or elsewhere. Um, the other side of the coin, of course, or, or the other argument would be that it was simply a case of the U.S. did not want uh, China to become the benchmark in this sector because it's not just capturing the sector in terms of then, you know, all of the business that, say, Cisco Systems would lose out on in the, in the U.S. because they wouldn't be building out this stuff. It would also be the ability to set standards and protocols for the system, and that pertaining to our previous conversation with regard to uh, the G20 and U.S. influence and U.S. leadership, has been one of the key levers of U.S. influence. It's their ability to set standards and protocols in key industries within the, the global economy and actually to control a lot of the, the, the hardware and the software that keeps the global economy running. So that would be the other argument. But either way, um, the U.S. had a lot of its allies kind of cancel orders um, or back away from potential orders to give Huawei this kind of 5G build-out contract. And it also started imposing quite heavy sanctions. And one of those sanctions was to ban um, the sale of high-end 5G chips to Huawei. This immediately put a huge dent in their mobile phone section because, it, you know, people think it's just mobile phones, but actually it's, a, it's almost a full suite telecommunications company. But for their mobile phone se segment, it was devastating. I think their, their sales fell by half within a single year in the smartphone segment. And it was a segment, as I say, where they'd been making tremendous gains. However, it's only taken them three years to catch up. I'm not sure if they're fully caught up yet, but it's only taken them three years to get to a seven nanometer 
5G tip uh, chip that's fully domestically made and installable and going out onto consumer markets, freely available to everyone. Does this mean that Huawei is going to now surge back to where it was in the mobile phone market, where it was really uh, looking as if it would start to challenge at least Samsung, but perhaps even Apple as well? I don't know. But the key thing about this story is that it's an obvious benchmark, an obvious guidance to what's going to happen with the most recent chip bans, which was the ban and the sale of uh, chips to China above a certain tech level uh, or below a certain nanometer level. Three years seems a reasonable time for China to be able to develop its own ones. Um, it's also been banned from buying the high-end lithography machinery, uh, which is, you know, like really precise and specialized stuff. It comes from uh, ADS, ADSL, I think, in the Netherlands, and they're banned from buying that, but they're still selling them now because the because the, the ban doesn't come in until September. But anyway, I think three years now becomes the benchmark of when we can expect the Chinese to catch up. After that, they might be a year, they might be six months behind, but it's, I don't think it's going to make a great deal of difference to their economy. And in fact, once they catch up, because of China's excellence, can we say, or because of China's uh, ability, shall we say, to produce stuff, whatever that stuff is, at less, at a lower cost for the same quality as anywhere else in the world, one can expect not just them to catch up, and therefore negate any uh, benefits that the US and the Western world might have had uh, for hobbling the Chinese economy technologically. Not only that, but we could also expect them to start eating in to the market for Western chip manufacturers and Taiwanese chip manufacturers, because now they'll have their own industry. And history tends to tell us that the Chinese do extremely well in catching up and then bettering their rivals on cost. Yeah, I think it's worth emphasizing the catch-up point. Um, I have the same feeling as you. If you turn around, basically three years ago, turn around, throw a spanner in the works, you're not producing 5G anymore. And now we see that it's about three years to catch up with that. It won't be three years next time. Every, every step you take here, you will shorten the distance um, because you're just incentivizing for them to develop this stuff. I mean... How long would it have taken them to develop domestic seven nanometer chips if they hadn't had the ban imposed? My guess is significantly longer than three years because the incentives to do so would have been much lower. So what you're doing with this, we've pointed out a million times on the show before, is you're getting a short term result. But in the long term, you're undermining your own position of power. It is so incredibly short-sighted. I'm shocked that a, that, a that a government would do it. Even if a company did this sort of tactics, market strategy, I'd, I'd say that's very unusual. That company should have CEOs that have a, have a longer-term game plan. But the fact that a country is using this as a strategy is really mind-bending. I mean, just, I suppose, before we leave it, the... It's interesting to know what the response to this has been in DC, because one thing that I add to your otherwise very good history of this is that 
um, a lot of countries had to be dragged into these bans, um, both on the domestic 5G infrastructure and definitely on the uh, on the export bans on chips and so on and lithographic machines. They had to be dragged into a kicking and screaming. They didn't want to do this. So, countries, because not just were they losing out on the business, not just were they losing out on a cheaper 5G infrastructure, but when somebody tells you to stop doing business with a trade partner, you start asking yourself, well, how deep is this going to go? What are the limits on this? Are, are you going to just keep asking me to do this? So, so countries obviously get very, not just countries, businesses get very um, anxious about that. So I was interested to see, okay, well, what's the response been to the development of this chip? Iran, there was a long, very detailed, and quite good article in the Washington Post. Um, I think it was yesterday or, uh, or the day before. And, um, and basically they had kind of a, an expert um, interviewed and he basically says, yeah, it's not really that surprising that this happened. He said um, they're going on the speculation that the Chinese haven't developed the uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines domestically. Now, they may have. We don't know because China hasn't told us what we're doing. But he's going on that assumption and he's saying, actually, you can, if you're quite good at it, use the older machines to get seven nanometer uh, chips. Um, you just have to run the process, say, four times instead of one time. Um, so I'm kind of reading this and I go, okay, so the experts knew that this was a technical pro uh, possibility. And um, just let me read the, the paragraph here that follows that. Uh, I guess they're quoting this expert here. They say, there is a downside. This increases the number of tools required four sets instead of one, raising the cost and slowing manufacturing throughput. Yet such expenses, extra expenses are marginal and can be ameliorated by efficiently managing the production process, end quote. Okay, so they knew all this? <laughs> they knew that it was possible to do this and they still did this ban that in the long run massively incentivizes China to completely onshore this entire production process? I mean, it really feels like there's there's maybe a slightly short-term plan here, but there doesn't seem to be any long-term plan here at all. It's very, very strange. Attention, deficit disorder. I read an article in the Washington Post this week that absolutely knocked my socks off. I could hardly believe it, actually, and I'm amazed that it hasn't generated more traction. Uh, basically, the Washington Post reported that in 2023, this year, the U.S. budget deficit, the gap between government income and government expenditures, is going to double to $2 trillion. Now, that sounds like a big number, but the U.S. economy is enormous as well. The key figure here, though, is that the fiscal deficit, the budget deficit, as a percentage of GDP, which is really the, the number that counts, not the, not the nominal size, 1 trillion, 2 trillion, 500 billion. No, it's the percentage of GDP that counts. This year is going to be almost near enough 8% of GDP. And that really absolutely blew my socks off. That is an unprecedented number for essentially any time outside of real economic crisis. I don't mean like a recession. I don't mean like a really bad recession. I mean a genuine economic like meltdown, i.e. the Great Depression or the global financial crisis or a war, 
like a serious total war, not like Vietnam, not like Iraq, but total war. Outside that, figures of 8% of GDP are just unheard of. And the thing is, this isn't a recession. It's not a sharp recession. It's not even a shallow recession. The U.S. Uh, economy is set to grow over at over 2% this year, by over 2% this year. Unemployment is incredibly low. In fact, it's so low, the Federal Reserve thinks it's having a push effect, a push effect on inflation. And yet, the, the, the budget deficit is at 8% this year. Now, you know, to give people an idea, during a, during a, 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 a recession, budget deficits tend to go up. And the reason is that during a recession, less business gets done, people buy less, um, there are fewer jobs available. So tax revenues go down. And at the same time, um, the government has to spend more on things like unemployment benefits and, uh, and other social security-related issues. Um, so, you know, their spending increases, their income decreases, so the deficit goes up. Not as far as 8%, uh, but it still goes up. Meantime, in good times, when the economy is growing, like now, people have more jobs, they get paid more, they spend more in shops, tax revenue goes up. They don't need unemployment benefit. They don't need other social security and social safety net things. Expenditures go down. So the deficit contracts or hopefully goes into surplus. You, you know, you have a budget surplus. So, I mean, 8% seem, now I'm not an economist, so I might be reading this and thinking, whoa, that is a horrendous level. It's unprecedented. It seems way out of whack with what would be normal for a healthy economy. But I'm not an economist, Philip, so maybe I'm getting it wrong here because I don't see any great um, terror or even much hand-wringing about it. This story came out in the Washington Post a, you know, a day or two ago as we're recording this, but probably uh, four or five days ago as, it's, um, as, it's being, as people are listening to it and haven't really heard much about it. So am I getting this wrong, Philip? Uh, I mean, is, is, is this a horrible number or have I just missed the point here? No, I, I, I think I think you've got it precisely. I mean, the, it, it, it it's really hard to exaggerate how odd the current uh, fiscal situation in the U.S. is. You said that the economy's uh, doing quite well. I mean, growth has been quite slow, but uh, as far as the unemployment rate goes, we haven't seen unemployment rates this low as they are now in the United States since the late 1960s. And that was at a point when uh, the government was spending a lot on both uh, social programs at home and on uh, the Vietnam War. Now, that didn't mean that the government was running a big government deficit uh, in the late 1960s um, when there was no recession prior to, I think, the recession start in 1971. It could have been 1973. I can't remember. Um, prior to that, the, the government was running roughly a balanced budget. So the first question you have to ask is, um, where is this money going? Because if there's a deficit in one uh, part of the economy, that means that there's a surplus in another part of the economy. It's just a kind of an, an accounting relationship, an accounting identity. Um, so the question is where this is going. And when you think it through, actually, you find that um, you can actually dust off the old uh, post-war Marxist macroeconomic literature here. So there's only really two places that this government deficit can go. It always now, just to, just to be clear, a government deficit always accumulates as savings elsewhere in the economy. So if the government's 
borrowing more than it's or, or it's, um, uh, spending more than it's taxing, it's it's pushing a lump of money in. You can think of it that way, and then it's issuing a bond into the markets. They're often bought by the central bank. Um, so where are those going? Okay, well, the first port of call is usually uh, outside the country. So you might get in times of relatively high growth a large government deficit if there's a big trade deficit because a trade deficit is uh, someone else's trade surplus, right? So they're accumulating money from you and you're running a deficit with them. This time around, yeah, the the uh, American trade deficit is not great. It's about minus 3.7 of GDP and it's the worst that it's been since the 2008 crisis. It's not an insignificant trade deficit by any stretch and that does account for where some of this money is going but it's not at record levels i mean the highest the american trade deficit reached was in 2006 it was minus six so the trade deficit just it explains some of it but it doesn't explain all of it so the only other two places that could could be accumulating these claims are the household sector and the corporate sector and there may be a little bit of household savings accumulation. There definitely was during COVID. But I think a lot of that's been wound down as prices have started rising and people have been drawing down on their savings and even going into debt with credit cards and so on to keep up with the inflated prices. So then there's only one other place that all that money will be going and it will be into corporate savings translation corporate profits and of course corporate profits are insanely high right now profit margins in the us i think they're at a record high now that's where you come to the old marxist stuff the marxists used to always say that you could have a crisis of capitalism where companies would be um would would be falling into some sort of a horrible uh, depression state or their profits would dry up and all these companies would go bankrupt but there was one way when when the economy gets really full of, as they'd say, contradictions and and things were really, really bad under the surface. There was one way of propping up those profit margins. It's for uh, governments to run deficits. Now, I'm not saying I believe in Marxist explanations of crisis of capitalism. Uh, I think some of them have merit. Most of them don't. But the Marxist analysis here feels strangely correct. The corporate profit margins are being... Uh, propped up by huge government deficits. And of course, the corporate profit margins being propped up are ensuring that stock markets don't collapse. Stock markets aren't in a great spot right now, but the one bright data point on the horizon is margins are nice and high. The earnings uh, that feed into, into stock market analyst expectations are relatively high. The problem is this can't last because and this is where the Marxists are wrong. It's not often some sort of crisis of capitalism where it's a crisis of profitability. It's actually usually the way an economy crashes is something like its household, it's the household sector crashing and construction jobs drying up. We've talked about this many times on the on the podcast before. That does appear to be happening at the moment. The, the housing market is very weak. Uh, prices have fallen. New builds are down. There's all talk of a corporate um, a crisis in the corporate property sector due to, um, well, overextension, overpricing, but also due to work from home phenomenon. Um, when that all comes down, if and when, I suppose, if and when it all comes down, you'll get the recession regardless. And then what will happen is you'll have the an extra additional uh, um a government deficit piled on top of an already high one. So if the government deficit currently is over 
tax revenue will fall, property tax revenue, income tax revenue from people being laid off, and unemployment claims will go up. People will start claiming the dole, and, and that'll all have what's called an endogenous effect on the government budget, and the deficit will go even higher. And that is the most likely scenario that we're heading into. That sounds astonishing, that you know, the idea that, I mean, these numbers to me anyway, and as I say, I'm not an economist, which is why I asked you whether I got this wrong. But from my perspective, these are the sort of numbers that you would expect to see in a, a kind of a basket case, 1970s South American economy, you know, a budget deficit of 8% at the peak of the economic cycle, just as it seems that you're about to go into recession and blow things out even farther. And, <clears throat> you know, on that subject, on that subject, by the way, I also saw a chart today that showed that the um, the investment purchases of housing in the US decreased by 45% this month. And we are now at a lower point in terms of the declines or the, uh, the sales of investment uh, housing. Uh, we're now at a lower point than we were in 2008. And as I say, we, you know, we've covered extensively on the Multipolar podcast the difficulties in the housing market, uh, corporate housing and also residential housing and some of the issues with regard to real estate in the US and how it all seems like it might be getting set to go pop. And this chart that I saw, which showed a 45% decline in investment purchase of properties, um, would really suggest that, well, it's another... It's another supporting indicator that it might be going that way. And, and not just in the U.S. I don't want to single out the U.S. The, you know, the U.K., my own country, is in a, a similar position uh, in terms of that. But one would have thought that if you go into a recession with a deficit of 8% of GDP, it, you know, if, if, if even a mild recession hits, that's going to blip up by another percentage point or two. And if it's a really serious recession, it could be in trouble a great deal of trouble indeed. Um, I mean, just to pick your brains, what sort of effect could you imagine that having? And would it be sustainable? I mean, the US under Trump, you know, had deficits every year, despite fairly strong growth, you know, four, five, six percent every single year of the Trump administration. Um, of course, then you had the COVID period where things really blew out to pay for lockdowns and people staying at home and all of the rest of that. Um, 2022 was a bit of a recovery, but now I've had the doubling back to, um, to 2 trillion, which is 8%. And we look set to hit a slowdown at the very least, a recession more likely, a really bad recession, possibly. I mean, how bad could it get? What would be the effect on U.S. interest rates? Because if you're suddenly having to sell way more debt to cover your budget deficit, the general tendency I would have thought would be for that to push up interest rates. Like the bond market will de demand a higher interest rate because there's simply more debt covering the same amount of buyers in theory. And would it be sustainable? I mean, the U.S. is an almost impenetrable currency, the US dollar, I would have thought. But could there be any ramifications on that if the if the bond market at any stage thought, hang on a sec, this is unsustainable and they don't look as if they're politically able to get it under control? I mean, where do you see this going, Philip Pilkington? Well, the first thing to note is um, 
To a large extent, the modern monetary theorists, the MMT crowd, are correct. If you issue your own currency, you can't really grow broke. So if um, if the government had to issue a lot more debt and the bond markets weren't really interested in that debt, the central bank would step in and buy it. And that's pretty much an automated process. Because um, I mean, would that not lead to inflation? I mean, I, I, I understand that quantitative easing is not necessarily inflation, or maybe not quantitative easing, but the you know the central bank essentially buying debt. I mean, that this, as far as I understand, would be inflationary if you weren't in a kind of um, you know if you weren't in a deflationary period within the economy, right? I mean, like quantitative easing wasn't inflationary in terms of like, you know, top line inflation or core inflation uh, because interest rates are on the floor. Demand was still collapsing. Um, you know, resources were bottlenecked within banks, classic balance sheet recession as banks hoarded money. And it was just overall generally deflationary. So all of this money printing didn't necessarily have an effect. But if you do that, when inflation is already kind of um, – I mean, it's coming down now, but it seems that the inflation genie has been released again. It's perhaps under control, but it's been released. And now suddenly, at a time of high uh, high employment, so low unemployment, I think it's better to say, and recently decent economic growth, you suddenly have to get the central bank to start buying bonds again? Is that not inflationary? Do you not have to accept inflation? The inflation comes through the spending itself. I mean, that's how the aggregate demand, as economists say, is introduced into the economy. So the inflationary pressure on the economy, for example, a lot of the deficit that's being run at the moment, or some of it anyway, is Biden's big IRA spending bill. The pressure on the economy comes from like building green battery plants or windmill farms, and then that puts pressure on the um, labor market. I mean, that's basically how the inflation comes into the system. So some of that inflation has already taken place. And um, the, the issue is that, as you say, um, if you're in a more deflationary scenario, then, um, you know, increasing government spending doesn't actually always. I mean, it could. I, you could get a stagflation scenario like the 70s, perfectly possible. But um if the economy fell into re recession, my guess would be that you'd see some deflationary forces at first, um, and so that would kind of that would kind of offset um, the additional spending that would kick in from um, from the tax revenues falling and the uh, unemployment claims going up. Um, I mean, I'd say that the the main so the risk with overspending um, is always it's well it's what Britain learned um, when uh, when Liz Truss tried to do that budget, um, the markets said no. And um, and the threat there was always to sterling. I mean, that must that's what needs to be kind of understood that that the market said no. And they said, well, I demand a higher interest rate for that. The government could have conceivably turned around to the Bank of England and said, could you please bid that interest rate by, back down? Now, that would have been complicated by the fact that the Bank of England was trying to um, control, uh, was trying to drive interest rates up at the time. But they probably could have managed it. The real issue would have been foreign bondholders would have dumped their bonds. And when that happens, they sell these bonds that they're holding for sterling. And then often they'll flip the sterling, they'll sell it in the foreign exchange markets and thereby drive the uh, the value of the currency down. Now, you don't need that much selling, additional selling in a currency market to drive the price of a currency down. 
The U.S. dollar, as you say, is a lot more resilient than sterling. Sterling's had a long history since 1945, perhaps even before, of consistently falling. There's been a, a lot of um, of sterling crashes or runs on sterling. Um, we've never seen that with the dollar. But you could say that the U.S. is moving into the position, its economic position in the world is becoming quite similar to post-war Britain. Britain used to have the reserve currency. It used to have the most developed financial markets in the world, and, and money just naturally flowed to the city of London up until the interwar period in World War II, where it became it became second best. It was loaded up on debt from the war. It owed America a load of money, and the dollar was ascendant. And at that point, sterling became a relatively unstable currency. Um, and you can you can probably take two hands to count the number of sterling crises that we've seen since 1945. America may be moving into that position now with China holding all the reserves, China having all the debt on America and America engaging in this increasing overspending or call it what you will. And that would be the concern that really, really what might happen is that if we got really crazy deficits in another um, recession, um, people could just start pointing at America and going it look by indicators. It looked like it looks like an over indebted basket case. And at that point, they might actually start further diversifying their currency holdings. And America could go, the dollar could go into that long period of decline that we saw the sterling go into um, from 1945 up until today, the sterling has never exited that. And that, in other ways, leads to slower, uh, slower equilibrium uh, economic growth and a general feeling of decline that Britain's had, if not since 45, certainly since 1956. That will be my concern. And I'd say that will be the one to watch in the upcoming recession. Just to add something very briefly to that, um, we've only fairly recently got over the last US federal government shutdown scare. And with regards to the way that markets might look at the US and their ability to uh, ultimately bring deficits under control, if not instantly, but over the long term, having the political will and ability to, um, you know, bring um, bring the fiscal path towards something like rationality. Um, the federal government in the US will shut down um, by after September the 30th. So at the end of this month, if uh, the Congress is unable to pass a funding bill by that date. And although it sounds, you know, quite a few weeks away, here we are at the beginning of the first week of September, September the 30th sounds a long time away, uh, but it's only uh, as of the day of recording 16 legislative days away. And by the time this is published 14 or 13. So the U S Congress has got about 13 days to come together and agree on how the federal government is going to be funded if it's not to shut down yet again. And I would say that every time the US political, or the actors in the US political system uh, act out like this, um, it, it, it adds another kind of small dent to an already bruised uh, confidence. And if you add to that um, really startlingly high uh, fiscal deficits that look like they might get worse and an economy heading, uh, it seems, towards recession and a few indicators suggesting that there's at least a possibility it could be quite a nasty one indeed. Um, and at the same time, the whole world is bifurcating and you're 
kind of sanctioning half of the world and and freezing the assets that they that that, that they hold in 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 your system um yeah i mean i think there are risks I, you know i think neither of us saying this is going to happen but there are risks in acting in this manner there are risks in running the economy in this way and it's certainly something i hope anyway that we can keep multipolarity listeners abreast of um really briefly in closing that that this there's a general thing it's it's something that kind of comes up over and over again on the show i don't think that there's any credible long-term macroeconomic plan for that the americans have anymore and you almost feel like economists don't even comment on it anymore like in the in the late 90s or even post 2008 there was kind of a vision of what we should do you know in the late 90s liberalize make sure to maintain the financial markets intact economists would debate actual issues tax tax increases tax cuts after 2008 the the debate became more tilted toward keynesian economics uh, intervention in monetary in monetary and fiscal policy and the whole thing is let's lift the slightly stagnant and depressed economy out okay it just feels to me since the pandemic and definitely since the um, since the uh, sanctions that economists just don't even talk about anything anymore. They kind of they talk about the latest data point or about, um, you know, a revision to economic data or whatever. But there's no narrative moving forward. There's just no consistent narrative of here's where we are and here's where we're going to. And, you know, people are just kind of like that. You'll see the random article come out in the Washington Post like you did, which is like, these numbers are crazy. And my guess would be there won't be a flurry of other articles. We'll just go back. We'll just go back and then no one will talk about it again. And it's a really, it feels very, frankly, Brezhnev era. Fresh from a huge victory.